we're in the midst of a devastating pandemic. The coronavirus that leads to COVID-19 is known to be a zoonotic disease, a virus that has spilled over from non-human animals to humans and then rapidly moved across the world with devastating impacts on human health, economies, and social stability. What is the connection between environmental change and diseases such as coronaviruses? How strong is this connection? Can we really blame bats? And what does the future of disease risks look like? With me today, we have Professor Kate Jones from University College London and my colleague, Dr. Peter Sergert Jorgensen from the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences and the Stockholm Resilience Center. My name is Victor Galas, and welcome to this episode of Rethink Talks, where we discuss the connections between pandemics, health, and environmental change. Hi, everyone. Good to see you, Peter, Kate. Hello. Kate joining us from from London. Thanks so much for for being here, virtually at least. And thanks, Peter, for being here. Pleasure. Um, So people probably don't know you. So why don't you just very briefly introduce yourselves, who you are, what kind of work do you do? Kate, do you want to go first? Yes, thanks for the invitation to come and chat. Uh, I'm a professor of ecology and biodiversity at University College London. And I'm really interested in the the links between uh, human health and well-being and planetary health, so ecological health, health of nature and of the climate. Thanks, Kate. Peter, what about you? Yeah, I'm a researcher here in Stockholm and uh, deputy director of the Global Economic Dynamics and the Biosphere Academy program at the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences and a researcher at the Stockholm Resilience Center. Great. Thanks. All right, but let's dig deeper into this issue. I mean, the, the issue for today is is health, epidemics, environmental change, global change. And I know, Kate, I mean, you made this brilliant study that was published in 2008 in, in Nature, uh, and you showed that, and, and I'm quoting a little bit, that emerging infectious disease events, um, such as SARS and Ebola, are dominated by zoonosis, so 60%. Of these and, and, and the majority originate in wildlife. And I know a lot of people argue that, that the risks that we're seeing here, like uh, such as the coronavirus, has links to environmental change in some form, like deforestation, biodiversity loss, habitat loss. Can you help us unpack this a little bit, Kate? Like, w- what is the relationship between environmental change and diseases such as coronavirus? Yeah, I think that's it's a really good question and it's an ongoing area of study. But if I just kind of segue into the pathways of how pathogens travel between animals and people first, then you can kind of understand the links between the environment and emergence of these new diseases. So there's a huge variety of ways which pathogens uh, get from animals to people. Um, so if you if you briefly think about um, the, if you briefly think of uh, like a pathogenic organism, like a virus or bacteria or a mm. or a f- fungi, um, you can you you've got a lot of options on how you get from animals to people. So in the mm. simplest case, an animal transmits a pathogen directly to a human via, for example, food or contaminated water 
in faeces or urine, uh, or it could be through direct bodily fluid contact or in, inhaled airborne particles. So an example of that would be, say, Lassa fever in West Africa. So that the, tra- the host is a rat and it's an agricultural pest and that kind of contact with animals and people is the way it gets in. But then, you know, there are more complex patterns mm. so that there might be a domestic animal that amplifies this pathogen transmission as well. So, for example, Nipah virus, which emerged in Malaysia in, in 1999, mm. that had a domestic pig um, kind of amplifying host. It's kind of it was an intermediary between the reservoir wildlife host and then these human the farmers, which are the humans. So that so the the kind of um, interaction there was with domestic species, and the evidence suggests that domestic species can play an important role here. Mm. And then you've got uh, you know, vectors, you know, transmitters of the diseases like um, arthropods, like insects, mm. and they can act as a as a way of getting from uh, the animals into people. So that Rift Valley fever, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, is like that. There's wildlife, domestic species, and vectors, and humans involved. And then some of these some of these vector-borne diseases can just become purely human to human, like malaria or dengue mm. fever. So just to emphasize though that the majority of these pathogens don't do anything to us. They can't get in. We've got huge mm. lines of defenses. So getting in is very difficult. Mm. And then once you're inside, um, it, you know, you can cause uh, an infection or sometimes most, most diseases don't cause anything to happen. And then a small, tiny proportion, and you probably know all the names of them, like mm. Ebola, SARS, mm. MERS, SARS-2, cause uh, you know, replication within the human and the pathogen to go human to human. So those are incredibly rare. Mm. So when you think about all those transmission pathways, back to your original question, if you change the dynamics between uh, these pathways, right, animals and people if you change those pathways Mm. by environmental degradation for example Mm. or intensification of agriculture you're changing the the kind of proportion of probability of contact between people and humans so anything that changes the transmission dynamics changes the risk that will get a spillover Mm. well i mean that's there's been a lot of focus at, at least in the public discourse around illegal wildlife trade and wet markets how important are is that type of of trade with animals compared to these other bigger changes that you talk about agriculture yeah i think that's another really interesting question i think wet markets um can be can describe a huge variety of of you know trading venues so wet market is what i have in in Muswell Hill in London on a, on a Sunday morning, right? It's a farmer's market, which, you know, provides fresh food for people in cities and in, a, in urban areas. So I think what the, the concern really has been around the wild animal part of those, those wet markets. And, and, mm. and I would really say that there's a lot of demonization of, of those, those markets at the moment. And I think they provide, you know, a huge amount of cultural, socioeconomic stability mm. to some of those regions. And, and actually, you know, we should be thinking about biosecurity measures to, it, to improve those, the, the biosecurity of those, those, um, those areas. There's, 
there's no doubt that they do play a role, but I just don't know how important it is. Mm. One point of contact versus, say, the whole of the region. Mm. So farming and um, and human activity in those, you know, perhaps just um, starting to turn into agricultural regions. Mm. So, for example, for the Wuhan market case, there was so much pre-exposure of the humans to uh, wildlife pathogens across that landscape so it's it's debatable whether the actual market was this mm. the actual source it could have been an amplifier for example mm, mm, mm. so yeah. i think it's very complicated yeah. and we shouldn't demonize things uh, yeah. from our position in the west about you know, yeah. uh, how people are are, um, are surviving mm. Before going over to you, Peter, I mean, since you bring this up, kid, this issue about uncertainties and, and, and unknowns. I mean, I saw this statement from the UN environmental chief that says nature is sending us a message uh, through this pandemic. But I'm thinking, like, how loud and clear is this message really? What are some of these major uncertainties about the connections between environmental or social ecological change and disease as, as you see it? Sorry, was that to me? Yes. <laughs> the uncertainties are exactly how those relationships work with degradation. So mm. we don't really understand that. So I think we need a better link to the effects of land use and climate change to these pathways. And it could be that um, there's one universal general mechanism, like you know, de- more impact onto the system, decrease the biodiversity present, and you get uh, more, de- you know, more more hosts which are capable of uh, transmitting the pathogen. Mm. And then you've got a higher hazard, which then turns into a higher exposure to the humans. They're maybe more susceptible, and then you've got a higher risk. Mm. But we don't know that for certain. So I think we need to understand these um, these links better. So there's uncertainty about the effect of degradation and different habitat degradation types mm. and the, the how that impacts each pathway for each disease. We also don't understand really what makes something go from being in its wildlife host, which is perfectly normal, to then going into um, a human. So what makes it more virulent Uh, or more possible to get through the human barrier. Mm. And then from there, what makes it go from human to human? Mm. I mean, there's something here, and, and I want to bring in Peter here as an expert. I mean, you 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 study the implications of evolution for the biosphere and, and in society, uh, for sustainability in general. I mean, what is the role of evolution in, in this pandemic as you see it? And if you think about a little bit into the future, what does it mean? For the coronavirus. Yeah, I think Kate did an extraordinary job in highlighting the complexity of emerging infectious diseases. And like all other species or biological units, they are they are a product of evolution. So obviously evolution has something to do here. Um, but I'd like to st- take a step back and go back to what Kate talked about when we talk about the land use changes there. And that's itself a result of an evolutionary process that has taken place over centuries where humans have domesticated animals, right? They've become part of our own ecological systems that we have in our cities, in our production ecosystems. And those those systems are now dominated by a, f- a few species that we have cultivated and become very successful. 
And it's so that's one role of evolution in, in emerging infectious diseases, the whole domestication process, right? But actually, once uh, an emerging infectious disease, there's an outbreak of that. Evolution have often taken place already. Mm. Um, so I think that's sometimes a, a misunderstanding. But there's not much evidence in this case that SARS-2 uh, has, has evolved very rapidly, very recently, at least not so far. Um, so, But evolution is just taking place all the time mm. in the environment, in nature, and just new interactions are sitting there waiting to happen. And sometimes, and in very few cases, as Kate mentioned, it happens to be a, a pathogen that is very bad for humans that makes this jump mm. into our ecosystem. Mm. Um, so, so that's that's one role of evolution. But I think maybe more importantly is the evolution that is happening in terms of ideas, practices, and technology in our own society right now being implicated by this pandemic, right? And we're seeing massive mm. change in society mm. uh, right now in response to the pandemic. And so obviously a lot of work to do there in understanding these changes. And I, I studied them from an evolutionary angle. Mm. Many people studied them from other perspectives. But but maybe that's actually the most important thing right now to, to do work on, right, is to understand mm. how we're changing in terms of our social norms. We're having, you know, social distancing like we've never seen before in, and changing patterns, how we relate to each other. Um, how we relate to the living world? Are we going to see sort of a, a biophobia emerge mm. after this? Mm. We don't know. At the same time, some people are hiding out in nature, right? And finding that's actually sort of, they are more safe there in this current situation. So is mm. that going to provide some opportunity for reconnection to other types of ecosystems? Um, I think there's so much mm. uh, happening right now that we need to understand. It's, it's, I think one of the, one of the ways that, um, we should go forward in trying to understand risk is trying to really think about it in a systems dynamic framework. So change is happening to uh, all parts of these pathways. So ca can we kind of take a leaf out of the climate change people like you guys uh, have done a lot of work on this, but you know, you've got these risk frameworks where you think about the hazard, you think about the exposure and you think about the susceptibility. Can we apply that to these diseases and think about how change operates on each one part of that so that we get a much more nuanced and system specific understanding of each disease and tr and then trying to forecast that so I think that would be really helpful and actually very possible to do that at a global scale to start to think about well how can we predict the next disease I don't think it's that hard actually I think it's more like we haven't got a, a kind of global system or any mechanism which to feed into and do these analyses and, and feed into policymakers making decisions. Mm. When, if you're a politician or uh, <laughs> uh, the administrator of the public health agency in Sweden, you don't have the opportunity to wait for all the information to, to come in in 10 years time or something. You have, you have to act now, right, mm. in this uncertainty. So, so that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a a lot of uh, decision making to be made on a very thin mm. layer of information there. Mm. So, I mean, and so you're a political scientist, Victor. Yeah, you might have some. I have lo <laughs> lots of things to say about that, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm thinking about this. I mean, again, I mentioned this this uh, paper and global analysis that you did in 2008, Kate, and thinking about that now, 12 years later, 
Would you say that some of the results uh, have changed or the new insights now, 2020, compared to 2008 in terms of new drivers of risk or new geographical places where where vulnerabilities or risks are higher now compared to before? Um, I would say that the 2008 paper was a real um, milestone in in throwing down the gauntlet, I think. It was Mm. kind of throwing down the gauntlet to let's have a think about this on a global scale and can we make some mechanistic predictions about what's going to happen? And I think it was a great stimulus for um, disease ecologists worldwide to start to think about this more broadly. So I think our understanding has changed significantly for the better over the last uh, few decade or so. Um, I think we now understand that these correlative approaches, although useful in that paper, um, need to be kind of, the pathways and the mechanisms need to be understood if you're gonna make it truly predictive. Mm. So I think there's been a lot of of progress on understanding generalized patterns of pathways between different types of pathogens and humans. I think that's been a really big uh, leap. There's also, understanding that not all species are the same you know so some species are are more risky than others and and also kind of just understanding a bit more about how land use change and climate change might impact different um different different host species so there is uncertainty but i think we've made huge amount of progress and Mm. i'd give another paper of mine as an example uh not to (laughs) blow my own trumpet etc but we looked at Ebola um, with a project with you, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we looked at Ebola and, um, and tried to understand whether we could make predictive models of Ebola. And Ebola is not to be morbid, but it's an absolutely fascinating disease. And, and it's caused you know, huge amounts of distress and, and death across Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere. But um, it's a fascinating disease. And... Um, there's a wildlife host, and then there's human-to-human transmission. And so trying to understand how to model that has been uh, really, uh, really interesting and eye-opening so that you can't, uh, there's only actually been a, a, about 20 or so outbreaks of Ebola. So if you were taking a correlative approach to predicting where those would be in the future, mm. You've only got 26 data points across all of sub-Saharan Africa, Africa, so that's not going to work. You're just going to model error. But if you can think about the pathways and then start to use that kind of mechanistic framework, but then put in remote sensing data to parameterize your, your knowledge and your model, and then use kind of understanding of how Ebola goes from humans to humans hmm. and where the transport networks are, um, and how global change is going to impact the hosts and also the people and the different scenarios of global change and land use change. You, then you're talking, you know, I mean, you can start to think about what's the, what's the risk surface. So that's exactly what we did in this new paper we published last year. And we did the modelling, you know, a year or so ago because it took so long. Um, and we, we predicted... Um, the outbreaks in DRC um, mm. as areas of really high vulnerability. Mm. And that, that's a kind of good example of how to link this to policy. If you're mm. understanding mm. the mechanisms, understanding a broad suite of scenarios in, in which global change is happening, 
Mm. And then giving policymakers an idea of where the really risky areas, the, the areas where if something emerged, it's got a higher likelihood of going, you know, re- having a really serious impact, a really mm. serious outbreak. Mm. So I think something like that, but we could start to do that for a number of different diseases, mm. but also thinking about the, the risky, say, coronaviruses, which have got human human potential spread. So, you know, there, there are complexities, and I don't want to minimise that, but I think mm. we've made a huge advance mm. in the last few years, and then we're starting to unpick these mechanisms in order to then make predictive models. Mm. So I think, you know, I think it's... I honestly don't think it's that hard anymore mm. <laughs> to make these these general predictive frameworks. I think what's hard is the political bit of it now. Mm. I think it's about where does this fall? You know, who's in charge of this? Mm. Like, mm. This is, it's about ecology. It's mm. about land use change. It's about climate change. And, but basically it's about public health. Mm. And so how do you, how do you get the public health people and the ecologist to talk to each other in a, in a joined up way? And, and it falls awkwardly between two fields really. And, and who's in charge of this? Who's mm. in charge mm. of implementing it? Mm. I mean, speaking of health risks and healthcare, and and going back to this part of on evolution, I mean, something that is really on the agenda at the moment now, Peter, is antibiotic resistance uh, and and COVID nineteen. Like, can you elaborate that a little bit? What is the connection between COVID nineteen and antibiotic resistance? Yeah, absolutely. So, antibiotic resistance, I think, has received more attention the last five. Well, 10 years, but especially the last five years. Uh, and actually, for a moment, it felt like it was kind of being overshadowed by this pandemic, like everything else. Mm. Right? Um, and I think there's still some risk, actually, that it will. Uh, but recently, uh, in connection with WHO releasing a new report on uh, from the global surveillance system on antimicrobial resistance, I mean, we are seeing these increasing trend in, trends in resistance, That's from before the outbreak. Um, but the WHO is concerned that all these viral infections in some places are being treated with antibiotics, even though that's not necessary. Mm. And that that's going to increase resistance in the mm. in the long run. Um, so so that's one link there. I mean, and we know from yeah, we know from other studies like uh, in the US every year when you have the flu season, antibiotic use goes up. Mm. Uh, so so that's that's mm. that's a well known and so especially in countries with poorly regulated sales i mean that's a and 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 uh few diagnostics um that's likely going to happen again this time and and probably will increase antibiotic resistance as well mm. a second a second link or speculative link that some people have made is in terms of mortality rates in some countries so uh people have speculated that uh countries uh, in some southern european countries with high level background levels of antibiotic resistance maybe the reason that they are experiencing higher mortality rates is because mm. they when you get infected with a viral infection you may get a co-infection with a bacteria and uh, just because you have resistance you have less li- uh, less opportunity for getting rid mm. of that mm. Mm. so those are the possible links but um mm. you know it let's see what happens in the future i think mm. One thing I want to highlight there is how also different these things are in, in their nature, right? Mm. Antibiotic resistance is this kind of slow-moving uh, threat that is where you see slowly increasing rates of resistance mm. over decades, mm. and suddenly we are 
kind of maybe crossing a tipping point where we see pan resistance. We mm. don't have any antibiotics that work for some species. Mm. Outbreaks of emerging infectious diseases like the zoonosis, like uh, COVID or or Ebola, are very different, right? And if we think about from a resilience perspective, these mm. are kind of shocks that happen to the system, uh, and they they always go uh, unexpected and, mm. and mm. spread mm. and. So they really speak to two different kinds of uh, resilience in society in terms of how we can live with the biosphere. We mm. both need these capacities for responding rapidly mm. to sudden outbreaks, but also in terms of dealing with threats like uh, climate change and antibiotic resistance that are these slow-moving things, but mm. that once they're moving, they're really hard to slow down mm-hmm. again. So, so some lessons there, I think. And also for the... If you compare like Ebola to the, to the COVID outbreak, I think... I mean, there are there are, reason, there are some some reasons why Ebola and also the first SARS outbreak were easier to contain, right? I mean, because they were so lethal. Uh, mm. So yeah. the, it's not the most lethal uh, mm. diseases mm. that are necessarily the biggest challenge in the long mm. run. It's mm. it's the COVID is is both fascinating, mm. fascinating and intimidating mm. in this in terms of its resilience. I mean, it can infect the respiratory tract. Tract mm. it can infect the lungs. Many people go unnoticed, so it's these hidden dynamics. A lot of um, things to learn about there and think about in terms of uh, mm. how we as society can cope with these kind of hidden mm. challenges mm-hmm. and hidden dynamics. But I'm thinking that, I mean, this issue is very much related to issues around social resilience. And, mm-hmm. and what we've seen here during the, the pandemic is that this pandemic is not at all the great equalizer as some people have mm. have talked about it, at least in the beginning. I mean, there's some very deep issues about social inequality and poverty. Would you mind exploring that a little bit, Kid? if you want to start, I mean, in, in your work, what role do you see that social inequality and, and poverty has in, in, in modifying or being affected by these disease, uh, disease risks? Yeah, I think it's it plays a really, really important role. Uh, and I think it's um, easy to overlook this as a disease ecologist. You you kind of tend to think about the disease in its in the host and think about the pathways to humans and how you know drive different drivers will exacerbate that that spillover risk. But actually, um, you really have to think in a much more joined up way to about human socioeconomics as well so that kind of exposure part of the model and critically susceptibility is really uh you know really a key part of that human dynamics and that human part of that framework so susceptibility you know plays a huge role and it and it could be that that there are interacting effects as well so you could have land use change marginalizing different populations so they have poorer access to mm. health facilities, for example, or it could be climate change also has that same effect. Like they're more vulnerable. They've been, you know, they're less resilient. They've had more shocks and mm. they're less resilient. So kind of on a, on a kind of more broader scale, you've got uh, the susceptibility issues being apparent to large scale drivers like land use change or climate change. But also, of course, you've got inequality social inequality <laughs> exacerbating those effects as well which I'm, I'm less of a an expert on but that that would all interact with your uh, with the susceptibility measure when we're trying to model 
uh, FX. Mm-hmm. What would you say, Peter? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating uh, topic. And I mean, it was called the rich man's disease in mm. many low and middle income countries in the beginning, right? Mm. And then it, but then it clearly the capacity of people in different income groups to mm. isolate themselves, uh, stay away from work. I mean, it's, it's very different. And uh, people that have a less of a certain in, safe income don't mm. have those opportunities, right? So mm. they are much more at risk in the in the longer term. So I think you can right now think about it as, as uh, you have some people spreading it around the world and others maybe that are more vulnerable once mm. it spreads within a country. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, so those are the two groups, kind of. Mm. I'm going to jump to a totally different topic it. now. It's related, of course. But I, I think this is a, a question to Kate. So one of the things that I noted when I got to know you was that you love bats. You're a huge bat lover. Uh, and, and, and of course, um, um, I mean, talking about the coronavirus, it's been at least linked to, to bats in particular. I know you've thought a lot about this, Kate. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? You're yeah, a big bat fan. Um, I love bats, so I'm not going to say anything bad about them. I think they're fascinating and uh, completely uniquely adapted and uh, just have some incredible evolutionary changes that have happened to them, which just make them endlessly fascinating to me and to many other people. Um, But I would say that they have been implicated in a number of emerging infectious diseases. And I, I don't know exactly if that's, Uh, just because they're kind of high profile and they um, some people, you know, uh, you know, listen to the myths about them being evil or getting in your hair and people, you know, they've got a bad PR so that Mm. if you hear about a bat in in an emerging disease pathway, that might be kind of over exaggerated in people's minds, but, or it could, it could also be that bats are special in terms of the Mm. pathogens. So there, there have been a few studies on the number of pathogens that bats have compared to other mammals. And, you know, the jury is, is still slightly arguing with each other, but, mm. um, but it's probably because there's just a lot of bat species and they've got a lot of pathogens. So they don't have more in proportion than, say, other, other mammal groups like rodents, for example. Mm. And rodents are also responsible for a lot of emerging infectious diseases. Mm. We're running out of time. Time flies. So I'm to talk about. just going to wrap up with with a question to both of you. I mean, this part is a little about trying to make sense of what's happening at the moment. And I know you both love to read, or I assume at least. <laughs> <laughs> is there any book that you would recommend uh, to our listeners and viewers uh, to try to make sense and, and, and understand what's happening now? Uh, Peter, do you want to go first? Yeah, actually, I, I think I brought it in my back. Sorry if I'm going to make some noise. Let's see. Oh, yeah, here it is. It's actually called the Stockholm Paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Thank you. There. Uh, and it's, but I think what's fascinating about it, it's, uh, it takes an evolutionary perspective on, on evolution of uh, clearly uh, parasites and hosts and mm-hmm. how host range so how many species you can infect and things Mm. like that change over time and just how dynamic it is Mm, mm. so the reason i want to recommend it is not because it has stockholm in its title but Mm. it's because it it really talks to the uh, dynamic nature of the biosphere Mm. uh, including uh, infectious disease and other pathogens but 
let's not forget, as Kate say, this is a small part of the, mm. the living matter on Earth, right? But but yeah, this would be the one. Mm. Kate, what about you? Mm. I would say that to see the bigger picture of where this, you know, this pandemic fits and how to recover from from this as a global society, which is fairer, more sustainable, and, you know, looks after our planetary health, I would say, I would recommend Kate Rayworth's book on donor economics. Mm. I think that mm. that is a really interesting take on how we can transform our thinking about economics and mm. the economy into one which uh, understands the intrinsic value of uh, ecosystem services and nature's contribution to people. Mm. So I think that that's not come from an ecologist, that's mm. come from an economist. And I, and I think that that's really inspired me to, um, you know, to, to think more broadly about the work that I'm doing and put it into context of of how we could go forward into the future. Mm. Beautiful. Lovely last words from Kate. Thank you very much to both for joining Thank you. this talk and, and hope to connect soon. Uh, IRL, as the kids say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Kate. Thank you. You have listened to Rethink Talks, a podcast series produced by the Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University. For more episodes, head over to our website, rethink.earth.